0: If I'm wrong, people become resilient and more energy efficient for no reason. But if this other guy is wrong, then we're all screwed. Who's got the story right? Who's got it wrong? Let the debate begin. Hey everyone, it's Chris Martinson here today, and we are diving into the most important energy debate of our times. This one between the green chicken Duberg and myself. This isn't just about saving the planet or cutting back on emissions. It's about our economy, our health, our future prosperity, and our national security. If Doomberg is right, it's cheap oil for the rest of everyone's lifetime. If I'm right, the world's economy is in deep, deep trouble. Is there some middle ground here? Can we find it? Look, if you're someone who loves a good debate or is curious about different viewpoints, then you've come to the right place. In today's world, it is easy to get caught up in our own beliefs and opinions. But what if I told you that having a healthy debate with someone who has opposing views can actually make us smarter, more open-minded, and get us closer to the truth, whatever that is? Indeed, the only thing that can save us is to have honest discussions. This whole series was initially produced for my subscribers, but it's too important to keep behind our paywall. It's a series of three separate videos and are examples of how we go about having proper, open-minded conversations about vitally important topics that are shaping your world today. This is who Peak Prosperity is. This is how we roll. If I'm wrong, nothing bad happens. But if Doomberg is wrong, well, our entire future prosperity is at stake. Hello, everyone. Chris Martinson here of Peak Prosperity. Here with another scouting report for you. We're going to be responding today to Doomberg's response. So it's kind of a um, it's a rebuttal of the rebuttal. Uh, you see here, locksmith UK saying, "Hey, I see that Doomberg has responded by saying that Chris's observations are nothing." that they haven't heard before and that there's a new uh U-beaut technology really beautiful technology in the middle east which has the answer sounds like a very bold claim i am not game to pay the 300 bucks uh just to see and play hide and seek but uh, i'd be interested to know uh, what they're hanging their hat on um well it is a peg and it's kind of a floppy peg we're going to go there right now but let me just say i really respect doomburg great writer ordinarily a really good thinker this is an area where i think we're going to see some weaknesses here and i still i'm a subscriber to doonberg and i would encourage people to be a subscriber he makes me think and i love sharpening a good argument up so let's go there let's look at this argument so this rebuttal of my rebuttal of his uh, position here says that he can put a ceiling on the price of oil it can't go higher than X, and he's going to tell us why, and we're going to examine that claim here, um, and says uh, modern chemistry will deliver ample and affordable supply for many decades. That is the subtitle here. We're going to take a look at that. Now, I'm just going to reproduce enough of his article here so that we can uh, respond to the claims made. I'm not here to reproduce the whole article and not trying to steal any content from anybody. Again, please subscribe uh, if you want to carry on further with learning from Doomberg, which is a good thing. He wrote here, in late December, we published an article with an admittedly provocative title, Peak Cheap Oil is a Myth, in which we carefully built our case for believing that there would be more than enough oil for more than long enough, and we put forth four simple arguments in support of our thesis. First, pessimists on the matter regularly underestimate the pace of technological development in the energy industry. Second, Much of what makes our current reserves expensive to exploit relates to political choices and the ruling elite who prevent the development of primary energy in much of the world today would be quickly wiped out of power in response to a true supply crisis. Third, the definition of oil used by doubters is far too narrow and should be expanded to include any hydrocarbon that finds its way into a refinery and finally When measured in ounces of gold per barrel of crude oil, in other words, in a currency that cannot be debased, the long-term price of oil gives no indication of any shortages on the horizon. Responding to number four, let me just be very clear about this. Gold is one of the most heavily manipulated prices out there in the marketplace. In fact, many commodities are manipulated. We know this now because the Federal Reserve and other central banks have access to the Chicago Mercantile Exchange platform where they get preferred pricing discounts trading stuff we can't for sure say that they're slamming the price of gold and even oil or wheat but we can suspect it strongly because they have the opportunity and they have the means and they're doing the trading at such volume that they get pricing discounts so i'm not sure it's relevant to use something like the long-term price of gold, because it was capped, by the way, at $35 an ounce and then at $42 an ounce for a very, very long period of time. Not sure that's helpful. So we can dispense with that one. But really, this one gets down to number three, is the definition of oil is too narrow, so we're going to go there. This is how he put his rebuttal, which is very nice. I appreciate uh, courtesy. He said, among the more thoughtful rebuttals um, was one put forth by Chris Martins in A Peak Prosperity who published a 36-minute video addressing some of our arguments. Yeah, part two actually addressed all of his arguments. I didn't release that uh, publicly. On his wildly popular YouTube channel, I dispute that. (laughs) It's Wildly shadow banned is absolutely the case. In Martinson's view, technology will not be able to outpace the decline rates observed in the Permian Basin. Easy-to-access reserves are quickly running out there and elsewhere. fair fair restatement and once u.s production rolls over it will be enter a prolonged period of energy shortage from which it will not be able to recover all true fair 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 rebuttal i mean fair characterization of my argument he says let's begin here we were quite familiar with such arguments prior to publishing they have been around for decades and become ever louder as the u.s shale operators continue to smash production records in our opinion such bottom-up analysis of rig counts Decline rates and proven reserves all suffer from one fatal flaw. They ignore the awesome power of chemists and chemical engineers to force their will upon nature from the top. This, this is a troublesome argument because my first question is, well, what's holding all these chemists and engineers back from making that green part? That's the tasty conventional oil. 50 plus years now. We've seen that the conventional oil peaked at around 1971, has been going down ever since. The question is, well, are these, are these, I mean, surely there's some reason for this, isn't there? I mean, are, are they just not trying? Uh, are the, did the chemists and engineers just get bored with producing such easy stuff? So they turned their attention to tight oil because that was just a more intellectually stimulating exercise? Um, inquiring minds would like to know. So that's conventional oil. It peaked and it's going down. That's the cheap and easy stuff. So again, if you've got your technological hopium and humans are clever hat on, you've got to explain to me why we have this chart and why it looks this way. And by the way, it looks this way in 51 other countries besides the United States. It looks like this everywhere. Okay, uh, next, what's holding them back, say, from the Bakken shale? So this, is, <clears throat> this isn't this is conventional. This is a shale Oil play principally. I mean, they got gas too, but you can clearly see that the Bakken hit a peak of production right there in around 2019, late to early 2020. And that's it. <clears throat> and by the way, the uh, Garing and Rosenquag um, commentary, they've got a really nice model. And by the way, I'll be having um, Garing on the show later on directly to talk about this because I like, yeah, I mean, that's a model. They say, look, once 50% of reserves are produced, you, you you really you just you growth stops and then at some point the growth actually worse than stops it goes backwards so what about in um <clears throat> here the eagleford which is really kind of a very light tight oil almost gassy it's kind of a hybrid it's somewhere between an oil and a shale gas play here again same thing uh 50 was produced growth stops and so uh, the eagleford has just been on a well, it peaked back in 2015, but it's been sort of flat ever since. And it just crossed uh, over that magic 50% barrier there where you see that red line in 2019 and that vertical line, and, and that's that. So it's very hard to get more production out. That's their model. Again, what's holding all those chemists and engineers back? Why aren't they just... what? It seems like they're not being clever enough in the Eagleford. How about a pure dry gas play, the Barnett Shale, well, here we see it peaked around 2012 and that's that <clears throat> it's been going down ever since. So again, if the thesis is, look, you just don't understand, Chris, there, there we're really clever and we're bringing new technology on all the time. That is the claim. Then I don't have, then to me, it looks like that's just a claim. The reality is, is the geology still matters. The reality is that reserves still matter. The reality is. Physics still applies. The real world is what it is. Now, all of this, I think, explains where we are in this oil story, this energy story. This is what the downslope of energy was predicted to look like. This is I talked about this back in 2008 in the original Crash Course, that we would undergo, you know, that having 300,000 job classifications is possible when you have abundant surplus energy. With less surplus energy, fewer things are possible. We will skinny down. Nate Hagens has, has since termed it the great simplification. 300,000 job classifications becomes 150,000 job classifications. And eventually we get back to just 10. The builder, the baker, the candlestick maker, and the farmer or whatever, right? <clears throat> because what you can do with surplus energy is whatever you want. Be amazing. Be awesome. But life gets harder and harder and harder. And this is what it looks like when you have farmers who are there trying to you know, make a living in this modern world with all these financial raccoons, you know, hammering the price of their commodities all the time and all these input costs and all these intrusive bureaucrats and wannabe regulators coming in all the time, making their lives harder and harder and harder, never removing rules from the books, new rules. Here's how many times you have to wash the cow's teats and with these substances, but not these. If you do treat with this, you can't use that milk for X number of days. If you Do this. You can't do that. You're going to have to do this. You're going to have to install lights, drains. We're going to have to test your soil. You're going to be responsible as a farmer for every one of these new rules. It's on you. We make the rules. We don't pay for them. Right. So, but that's what happens towards the end of your energy bonanza. That's just, that's just what happens. It's is simple. With energy surplus, you get lots and lots and lots of people who find ways, clever ways to become those bureaucratic diktats and minions right who you get more and more and more rules towards the end of this this is what we saw at the end of the roman empire they had a lot of rules they had big bureaucracies and the bureaucracies exist so the bureaucracies can continue to exist that that is their prime reason if their prime reason originally was hey it's kind of awkward when people die from tainted milk good thing yeah maybe we should have a couple rules around that but next thing you know when you're dictating uh how many times a day the cow has to be you know um you know walked in a field or that it has to have a certain uh set of treatment patterns or you know blah 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 blah, blah. It, it's it it gets it gets bizarre quick all right uh but it, you know so the bureaucracy grows on the back of surplus energy in the case of roman times that would have been all the grains they were importing from all the hinterlands right and that allowed them to build this very complex society but once that conveyor belt of tastiness stops whole thing collapses same thing today we now have these huge massive bloated ideas of bureaucracy that exist around building codes and trade and tax code don't even get me started on the tax code on and on and at the same time we're starting to have less and less surplus energy and it leads to things like this we're going to see more of this this is why this is so important so i took that little departure because if i am wrong Nothing bad happens. We we saved we we treated our oil as a as a more valuable resource that had a higher use than wasting it. Uh, and that's what we're doing principally. We're really wasting this stuff, um, and that would include other hydrocarbons. So anything with a carbon in it that's got hydrogen on it, hydrocarbon, right? If Doomberg is wrong, he's allowing people air cover to say, "Oh, we don't really have to do anything because." technology and clever humans will solve all of this so therefore we have nothing to worry about again editorially i do have a problem with that approach because even if we don't because of our lifespan gray hair uh remaining and all of that that it's not our problem it's definitely some future person's problem and we'd better leave behind an abundant and robust infrastructure so that our children our grandchildren as yet unborn etc great-grandchildren all of that that they will have the capability of leading a reasonable life. So all of that let's get back to the story. All right. We read that top part in yellow. He carried on and said, if the situation Martinson predicts ever did come to pass, this insurance policy of last resort would quickly be cashed in leveraging one rarely mentioned technology commercially proven and ready to fill the gap whose wide scale deployment. Would forever allay any fears of permanent hydrocarbon shortages. So confident are we in its potential that we believe its existence allows us to estimate a ceiling on the long-term equilibrium price for oil. Wow, that is pretty awesome. By the way, that's the kind of verbiage that really sells out there in the world of optimism. If you really want to get more subscribers, you say stuff like this. I know... I know how I could get more subscribers, greed and fear. There's two things I would do. Follow me or great harms will befall you and your family. Hey, here, you know, click here and you, and I'll show you the top three things you can do to get wealthy. That greed and fear cycle is not what I'm about. I'm about here's the data. Here's the data we have. You decide what the data is telling you. I'll tell you what I think it's telling me. And when the data changes, we change. This right here saying that it could be quickly cashed in. It could be... Um, adopted at scale, right? And by the way, it will allay any fears of permanent hydrocarbon shortages. Those are really big claims. So let's take a look. What is this decisive technology and how quickly would or could society broadly pivot to its use? Well, let's head to the Middle East and find out. Sitting amongst the vast array of energy infrastructure in Qatar's massive Ras Laffan industrial city is one of the most important chemical pro- complexes ever built brought online a little over a decade ago shell's pearl gas to liquids gtl plant is one of a handful of world scale facilities to o- in operation today that convert natural gas directly into refined products using the fisher Troph technology at just under 20 billion to construct pearl ctl gtl sorry is the crown jewel in the shell qatar petroleum partnership and one of the most complex and challenging energy projects ever commissioned. Uh, that That's Shell's own words um, from their website. One of the most complex and challenging energy projects. The, right there, we have a clue. Because the most challenging and complex energy projects ever commissioned, ever commissioned, does not really comport with. Hey, uh, this is uh quickly ca- we could quickly cash this in at scale <coughs> and and deploy it everywhere rapidly. But let's take a look at that, see if I can support my view on this first. This is what that facility looks like. Whoa, take a look at that. That is a maze of pipes and lights and tanks and valves and this is and that's. It's a pretty astonishing, it's a really astonishing, it is an amazing facility. So, Dunberg's analysis says at peak production, that facility we just saw on the screen there, the GTL plant is capable of converting 1.6 billion cubic feet per day of natural gas into 140,000 barrels of GTL liquids, which is pretty tasty stuff, by the way. It's called gas oil. It's basically diesel and or kerosene without any sulfur in it because they extract that earlier on in the process. Pretty tasty stuff and a further 120,000 barrels of natural gas liquids and ethane. So they take the gas into this facility, it goes through the first train they call it of chemical processing and it extracts the natural gas liquids cuz so so this this natural gas is coming out of a field. It's got some impurities in it, right? It's got probably some carbon dioxide in it. It has water, it has sulfur. So all of those are taken out and then in that process, they have sulfur and things that get taken out. And in that process, they also take out the natural gas liquids so that into train number two, they put this pure, highly pure, awesome, tasty, just methane. That's one carbon, CH4, carbon and four hydrogens. Carrying on, quote, how much does 6,000 cubic feet of natural gas cost on the open market? Oh, I'm sorry. Using simple arithmetic, he said, first, we deduce that it takes approximately six. 1,000 cubic feet of natural gas to produce a barrel of useful liquid hydrocarbons. And so how much does that cost in the open market today? Here now we're at the core of the argument. As luck would have it, a 1,000 cubic feet is roughly equivalent to a million BTUs, which makes the calculation quite easy. In the U.S., natural gas is selling for approximately $3 per million BTUs, while liquefied landed natural gas in Europe can be had for roughly $10 per million btu so 3.3 times as much you're welcome europe sorry we bombed your Nord Stream gas pipelines and you are now buying natural liquefied natural gas from the u.s at 3.3 times the cost of what it probably ought to cost you whoops our bad should we not have done that so sorry for your remiseration and poverty uh europe pick your partners better next time <clears throat> Carrying on, quote, Accordingly, the input material cost would currently range between $18 and $60 per barrel of product, and we can only assume Shell is paying below market prices. That's it. That is that is the, there it is. 18 to 60 bucks, that's the ceiling. Oil should never cost more than 18 to $60. Now, first thing, the Pearl plant was actually built in 2010. Since 2010, oil has been over 100 and even $120 a barrel for big chunks of time. I'm wondering why these gas companies and these oil companies haven't run these same calculations and just concluded that maybe this is what they could do. And by the way, notice also, we have to be very careful how we interpret this because it says in yellow there, quote, accordingly, the input material costs would be between 18 and 60. That's the input material costs. On the back end of that, we have to calculate well, there's the capital costs, there's maintenance, there's that, because let me back it up. A facility like this, you don't just build it and then it sits there running. You have to repaint things, valves need to be replaced, uh, pipes wear out. This is just standard stuff. A $20 billion facility back in 2010-11 when they built this, twice that today. So it's a $40 billion facility today. And by the way, you don't just throw $40 billion down without having a fully dedicated gas field that you know you're going to have at least 30 years of production from that nobody else is going to come and siphon that off and take that away. A plant does not get built like this unless you have a defined input feedstock. So it's not like you can just put this anywhere. There's natural gas in a pipeline and say, oh, we'll just start siphoning that off for a plant like this. Let's be clear. Something like this has to be co-located within the context of a very, very large, robust Natural gas field, what would not be appropriate? Any of the ones in Europe that we know about at this point in time, right? The Groningen field in Holland, totally on its way out. They have earthquakes now as they try and draw that down. It's so low in pressure that things are caving in as they draw more gas out. So not that one, um, et cetera. There, there are places where something like this might make sense, but it, it would be more like saying, hey, anywhere there's water, you can have hydropower. No, you need water plus geology and <laughs> geography all have to sort of conspire to give you a place where you have enough rainfall and you can capture it and you can drop. Um, Iowa, bad place for hydropower, right? Lots of rain, uh, no hydro. So at any rate, that's uh, that's part of that. So let's, uh, let's go there. So he said, oh, you know, accordingly, yeah, 18 to 16 bucks per barrel of product. But clue one is nobody else has built one of these things in the last decade. And if it was that compelling economically or that easy, somebody would have done it. So the idea now that, oh, as soon as we want to, we can just scale these things up. We can put them anywhere we want. The worldwide, we can do it quickly. You do not build this quickly, um, obviously. Okay, but that's not the worst part of my argument. Here's Here's where my analysis comes in. Let's step through this together. So 1.6 billion cubic feet of natural gas in, that's the first row. The next row is that there's 1,030 BTUs per cubic foot of natural gas. Multiply those two numbers together and that means there's 1.648 quadrillion BTUs coming into this facility, this pearl facility. Great. First thing we know is they siphon off 120,000 barrels of natural gas liquids. Those have 103,000 BTUs per barrel. Not that much. So we can say that 12,444,000,000 BTUs are taken out of this system as natural gas liquids. That leaves us in methane. I take that 12, million, 12 billion and subtract it from the one point six four eight quadrillion, trillion. Um, trillion. Trillion, sorry. Trillion. And we get up, there's 1.635 trillion BTUs going into the gas oil train. Are you with me so far? So all we did was say, what was coming in? Some got taken out. Here's what's left. This is what's going in to create these gas oils. And by the way, they create 140,000 barrels GTLs per day. It's awesome. There are 5.8 million BTUs per barrel of this gas oil stuff. I use diesel as an approximation for gas oil. It's close enough. I'm probably probably dead accurate actually. That means that when we multiply 140,000 barrels of gas to liquids times its energy content, which is 5.8 million BTUs per barrel, you find out that 817 billion BTUs are heading out of this thing on a daily basis from that train, as they call it. It's a big long train of processing, uh, which means, though, that it cost us 1.65 trillion. We got 800 billion out. Literally, almost perfectly, exactly 50% of the energy in the natural gas is lost in this process. Guess what? Taking big long molecules and cracking them and making them smaller, you can do that relatively cheaply. Taking little molecules and making them into bigger ones is very expensive. How expensive? About 50% expensive. Half the energy in the natural gas is lost or is used in this process of making it into longer things. And that's just the BTUs. Don't even get me started on all the rest of it, which includes things like... um, The fact that uh, there's 800 people working at this thing, which again, if we said, all right, well, um, you know, 800 people times, I don't know, $150,000 a worker. I don't know. what, What is that? That's 120 million in staffing costs per year. There's whatever the maintenance for this facility, which can't be inconsiderable. And not least of which is when you take that gas, that natural gas and put it into this thing, you don't use it anywhere else. It doesn't, you don't, you don't get to use it anywhere else right so um, i just think well so so let's think about this <clears throat> this is a massively complicated plant as i've shown you in the picture right very specialized workers obviously highly trained requires a massive gas field that can deliver for the entire 30 year amortized life of this particular project but even if it were to be pursued as a solution that this one plant As massive as it is, you know, I I could pull that chart up. I mean, sorry, the picture again, but as massive as that one plant is, it's currently producing 51 million barrels per year. So that's taking 140,000 barrels per day, multiplying by 365, 51.1 million barrels per year of this, of diesel. And that's cool. But this is against a global consumption of around 30 billion barrels of crude plus condensate. So that's 82 million barrels per day times 365 so how much is 51 million barrels compared to 30 billion barrels the answer is it's 0.16 percent of our global yearly consumption of oil 0.16 this one massive plant is producing 0.16 0.16 percent of our total Consumption. So how many of these plants would we have to build to begin to offset whole percentages? The answer is really large. I mean, looked at it another way. So, so to to, uh, to offset a single 1 million barrel per day decline in crude plus condensate by this other process, this fancy, fancy pants Pearl GTL plant. Let's just say we wanted to do that. Let's do the numbers. So let's say we have to offset a single 1 million barrel per day decline in, in across the world for crude plus condensate, but we really need that because we really need the diesel and the jet fuel and all that. That would require the building of 7.1 of these facilities. Because 1 million barrels per day is 365 million barrels per year. This thing only produces 51 million barrels per year. 365 divided by 51 gives us 7.1. So we have to build 7.1 of these facilities to offset a single 1 million barrel per day decline. Again, like I said, if I'm wrong, nothing bad happens. But if Doomburg is wrong, that we can just build these things quickly, the chemists are smart, we just slap these things up, it's easy pie, easy peasy, because there's natural gas all over the place. That's all we have to do is build these fischer tropsch GTL plants, hither and yon. The first question we're going to ask ourselves is relates to this, which is, this is again is Dennis Coyne's uh, shock model from Peak Oil Barrel. I forgot to attribute it here, but I attributed it before Sorry, I didn't put that in there, but let me attribute it verbally right now. Dennis Coyne a Peak Oil Barrel came up with this. His world, C plus C, this is just crude plus condensate. This doesn't include all liquids, which includes natural gas liquids, palm oil, corn-based ethanol, you name it. Mm-mm, none of that stuff. This is just conventional crude plus condensate. You can see here that he has it sort of peaking out. And if we said, well, somewhere around 2027, it starts to roll over by 2029ish maybe 2030 at the latest it's down 1 million barrels per day so that means we have to build 7 of these pearl equivalent plants by 2030 and then we have to build 7 more pretty much every year thereafter to 2040 so every 3 years i mean so so like we have to build 7 In the next three or four years then we have to build seven in the next three years then seven in the next three years like where where are we going to put 21 new pearl-sized plants where where are the 21 gas fields like there's questions right obvious questions And, and so this is what it would look like if we had to build that's seven seven of those we have to build seven seven of those um so question i mean does this seem likely to you i mean if so It's okay, it can. You could say, yeah, we could do that. If so, how much of our future prosperity would you be willing to bet on this? And finally, uh, to me, using natural gas to upgrade into gas oil, this is actually a tragedy. It's not a triumph. It's an unspeakably grave loss of 50% of the native energy uh, that's in, in natural gas just to make up for our inability to plan properly. Right? What should we do instead? Well, we should probably concert our, uh, convert our internal combustion engine vehicles to burn compressed natural gas. And then we get closer to 100% of the energy from natural gas. You know, less the cost of compressing it. Right? Um, it, this is a known. This is a provable, proven, workable concept. There are plenty of vehicles out there that run on compressed natural gas. They are. They work really well. In fact, the octane rating on compressed natural gas it's like 180. These engines have almost no soot, almost no buildup. The oil lasts for a really long time. I've heard of these engines lasting for a million miles that are burning compressed natural gas because uh, it's a very, very clean burning product. Um, so at any rate, but but and by the way, it's a known and workable concept that these, you know, using the natural gas directly to move things around. It it, it does not require uh, a 40 billion dollar facility or whatever it would cost to build today with 1,000 circuitry control cabinets and 200 computer servers programmed with 12 million separate software codes, which is how they describe the system. The system is linked to every other part of the plant by 6,000 kilometers of cables, which would stretch from Doha to London if laid end to end. (coughs) I mean, beyond beyond, beyond this being kind of a boneheaded thing to do, to take natural gas and lose 50% of its energy... I judge that this gas-to-liquid concept is unworkable over the longer time frames needed to make a real difference. I don't think we can build them fast enough. I don't think there's enough premier gas fields in the world to build seven, then seven, then seven, then seven, onwards and onwards. In other words, Doomburg pointing to this one shining example of an amazing, beautiful, but most complicated, complex energy infrastructure project ever conceived and commissioned, to point to that one thing and say, oh, we'll just do that, that's a kind of hand-waving that, that I think is, is, does a disservice to the real scale of what's involved in that whole thing. In other words, it's kind of like technohopia mixed with a, with a strong flavoring of, uh, you know, aren't humans clever uh, sprinkled on top, right? It's, that's a lot to bet everything on. So I judge this as an unworkable concept. I don't think it's it, it survives the math um, problems. And not least of which is there was no analysis for how much gas, natural gas is out there, how big are these reserves, and if we started pushing a huge percentage of that into the oil stream, does what does that do to the gas pricing? What does that do to project pricing? What does that do to the overall cost of 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 the whole system? And it flunks, I believe, the EROI challenge massively, massively. Cause by definition Energy return on energy invested of that gas oil at a minimum has 50% of its self shaved off of there. And I think it's actually higher once you include the embedded capital and embodied energy in those plants and all the workers and all the technology and the complexity and yada yada yada. Okay. That's it. That's what I wanted to say today. Um thanks very much for listening. We'll be back with you next time. Let me know what you think about this. Uh, This was obviously too long of a challenge to simply put in a comment. So thanks, everyone, for engaging. Super important topic. Can't wait to continue this conversation. Bye.